0: Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. In this episode, I spoke to Ryan Packer, a journalist based in Seattle who covers transportation issues for The Urbanist. Their name might sound familiar because Ryan is also Bike Portland's special correspondent on the Interstate Bridge Replacement Project, or what we often refer to around here as Columbia River Crossing 2.0. Ryan recently visited Portland, so I thought it'd be fun to sit down Talk a little shop about what it's like to be an advocacy journalist in the transportation space, hear their latest opinion about where the project is headed, ask them why despite all signs showing that we should do otherwise, transportation departments continue to arrive at a quote, solution, unquote, that involves widening freeways, and much more. After our conversation, Ryan and I walked across the I-5 bridge, and I asked them what they thought about the experience. Here's our conversation. I am here with Ryan Packer. Ryan writes for The Urbanist. He, You might have read his stuff on Bike Portland. We are here in the Bike Portland headquarters podcasting studio in beautiful North Portland. And Ryan came down to Portland on a little vacation, and they are also planning to do a little walk over the I-5 bridge, which is the subject of so much of their reporting. So you call yourself a freelance journalist? What do you call
1: yourself, Ryan? Um, I call myself an advocacy journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I put that front and center. There's a lot of uh, people who would probably distinguish what I do from um, straight transportation reporting that you might see in the Seattle Times or the Oregonian, but honestly, I don't really see us as doing very different things. Okay, so how did you even get into this wonky little niche that we all know and love? I think the thing that basically got me into writing about transportation was just trying to get around Seattle. Um, I walked to work on one of the most unpleasant streets in, in town And every day. I I couldn't depend on the bus because it got stuck in traffic, and so I would just walk and lament how the priorities were all out of whack on that street, and it was just unpleasant for everyone. And that sort of was my animating principle in terms of looking behind the curtain and saying, why is this like this? And then now I'm 50 layers deep, basically, and trying to figure out how all these parts work together. I think mm-hmm. that's sort of become clear to me, all the aspects of our transportation system and how they, uh, how they work together, or rather do not work together, all the different levels of government and advocacy and bureaucracy and all those layers. And you're in deep because like you're going to
0: meetings, you're covering like the deepest stuff and specifically this huge project that, we've been, that you've been covering for us on Bike Portland, which is this, let's see,
1: Interstate Bridge Replacement Program.
0: program. Does it annoy you that they call it program?
1: It, it bothers um, I think me a wh- lot. What annoys me more than that is referring to the IBR solution. That's the overall package of what will be proposed is ultimately uh, the IBR solution.
0: Is it reasonable for me to be just completely skeptical of these word usages absolutely this just seems like such propaganda from these agencies but talking about a solution
1: an IBR program it's like why don't they call it a project mm-hmm. it's so strange they put a lot of thought into it which makes sense they have a lot of people working on this they do and it's like um, the other big one obviously that we're covering that is connected
0: is the I-5 at the Rose Corridor uh, and it was so clear to me that as they put that sort of project together as it got real and it left like plans and documents and became like into public outreach and like okay they're really going to actually try to make a project I knew that they were just going to throw as much as they could at that because they have to know that anything in the Portland metro area is going to be like the hardest freeway project to move forward and they also obviously know that when did the Columbia River crossing fail so uh 2013 okay so so 2013 they then especially with the, the new five, the new CRC attempt, uh they knew not only uh would it would the Portland region be a difficult place to widen a freeway in 2020, 2021, but they're coming off this massive failure of the CRC in twenty thirteen. So it's like, yeah, they are going to they've just been like piping up the propaganda, it seems like, this program thing, calling us a solution. I mean, are there any other things off the top of your head that you've noticed? Because I know you've been following it so closely. That just sort of reek of governmental I, I there's I mean, the word propaganda seems to fit to me. I don't wanna be like hyperbolic about that. I mean they it seems like they're purposely doing these outreach things, like above and beyond what's typical,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously there is the great coinage that is the auxiliary lanes. And so the program administrator Greg Johnson is is constantly saying that you know I5 will have three lanes um, on one end and three lanes on the other end and, and all of the, the extra lanes will be auxiliary. So those aren't real lanes. Those are just sort of there for safety. I know when we, I talked to him uh, la- earlier this year he said that if they could do a two-lane bridge that they would do that if it was if it was safe.
0: <laughs> Did he actually say if it was safe like that was his thing? Okay, so let's back up. Let's kind
1: of like unpack this this project. Well, you asked me how I've started digging into it. So in Washington state basically all of our um, our highway department, uh, the Washington State Department of Transportation, which used to be called the uh, Department of Highways, which it basically still is, they they say that they don't make policy; that the the state legislature makes policy, and so that even even our great uh, Secretary of Transportation, who used to be um, the head of an urbanist organization Smart Growth america he says he doesn't make policy; it's, it's all up in the legislature and so okay who makes the, po- the policy then and you go to um the legislature and obviously we have two houses and in the senate we have our one of the most conservative members of the uh democratic caucus who represents a area up in puget sound uh called lake stevens and he Voted against the clean fuel standard last year, um, but he is in charge of assembling a transportation package, which we've now gone through three sessions without passing. You know, it's a huge bucket of highway expansion projects.
0: This sounds so similar to the Oregon experience Mm -hmm. that we've had. They're very similar. Oregon is, and I'm sure they've, they learn from each other. I'm sure they have drinks together on occasion. Mm -hmm. Uh, and trade notes on how to get this stuff through over an increasingly, uh, you know, uh, an increasingly strong opposition, I think, as we as we as we go you know, down the line of like, you know, people getting more worried about climate change and all these other issues like this whole thing of when they say it's up to the legislature, that is constantly being said by, you know, ODOT and the Oregon Transportation Commission, which is another layer which is supposed to be this like independent oversight. Does Washington have that too? Um,
1: our, our transportation commission is apparently less involved than yours. Um, they set toll rates and ferry rates, but they don't seem to have to actually vote on projects like yours does, which is interesting to me. Um, so it's actually a little bit less transparent up in Washington. They just sort of voice support or not.
0: Yeah. And so the idea that somehow the DOT people are not influencing what these senators and other people in the legislature think and do it just seems so far fetched to me. It's so bewildering for like advocates to try to weave through like where is the right place to put pressure and like evenly, yeah, like how you can even influence what projects come out at the end of that like pipe. You know, like I always think of like Dr. Seuss illustrations where it's like something goes into the box of like, you know, maybe there's like values and things we actually need. And then it goes to this black box and it
1: comes out the other end as like, wider freeway and then once they get their funding the dot turns around and you know produces an environmental impact statement that says this project is going to save how many tons of greenhouse gas because we're going to be moving more efficiently even though increasing science uh, is is showing that that that's just false
0: right and it's only one of the impacts of having to move like large steel vehicles you know that that move one person like through space right yeah, these similarities are really, really frustrating. And then it all comes together in like the, at the Interstate Bridge project, you know, because you have both of these agencies then you have another layer of like a bunch of consultants and stuff that are like kind of managing things. So it's, I'm, I'm glad you're sitting in on those meetings and like trying to figure out what's going on. So for people that are like, you know, worried, maybe they're hearing that the CRC, CRC is coming back. Where, where do things stand right now?
1: Um, It is definitely coming back and they're, they're trying to rush through it very very quickly they want to start construction in 2025 which is incredibly incredibly ambitious for a five billion dollar project
0: what's the rush coming from
1: um it's partly because there's some unspent funds from the uh crc and so um basically the talking point is they have to give it back if if they don't move forward with the project, although many people have pointed out that they can simply say that there's a no-build option for that and not have to return the funds. But that's one of the excuses. But we have Jay Inslee coming to the end of his um, fairly long uh, term in office in Washington. Mm -hmm. You have Lynn Peterson, who used to be the Washington State uh, Secretary of Transportation and now is at Portland Metro. This project is ultimately both of their legacies Mm. and it's hard to not see a desire to get this done in any way, shape or form and say that you did consequences and um, externalities be damned. I mean, so to go back to Lynn
0: Peterson, I just feel like she's an interesting figure because she is she sort of appeals to like this progressive base in some ways. Uh, I mean, being the president of Metro, you would just assume, and it's it's true. I mean, she she there's a lot of progressive people that I think so ostensibly are like in support of Commissioner Peterson. Uh, I mean, sorry, Councillor Peterson. But like you said, so from your view, she is certainly not doing anything to prevent CRC 2.0 at this point. It seems like she's
1: asking some hard questions. Maybe she is walking a very fine line, um, and I definitely. Think she is asking the right questions at times, but sometimes you have to do it more than ask questions. Um, and so there are certain aspects where we're just um, in wait and see mode, and that seems like a recipe for disaster uh, because. Um, Her current talking point to the rest of the Metro Council, which is fairly, you know, has some skeptical voices and maybe soon will have even more. What she's saying right now is that the uh, environmental documentation from the CRC that they're attempting to recycle basically sets the maximum size for the project, but that they can make it smaller. Um, I'm not confident of anyone's ability to actually navigate that and... And ensure that it's actually right-sized in terms of, A, what the budgets are being thrown in this before we even have a design, and B, just the, the political dynamics involved. So that's been her tact to try to throw some cold water on it
0: is to try to stand up and talk about right-sizing.
1: Um, that's what she said to the Metro Council at their last work session on this, to the actual internal group that she's a part of at the, at the uh, executive steering group. Um, it's, it's really more about talking about, uh, reducing greenhouse gases, talking about integrating the, the, um, regional congestion pricing. It seems to me one of the big, one of the big
0: fears of these projects, though, is just inertia in time. It's like the longer they can bake and just sit there and move forward and another meeting and another meeting, it seems like it, it helped. Well, in some ways it helps the project because it's still alive, but then I guess in, in some other respects it you know, delays can end up killing these things as well. And so I guess for someone like, you know, Counselor Peterson, she could she could be aware of that. Maybe I'm being too, being too uh, optimistic about the way she's going about it. And maybe there should be a little bit more, you know, stronger words in terms of like, okay, Counselor Peterson, it's time to like step up and really, you know, either fish or cut bait with this thing. You know what I'm saying? Do you think she's being savvy and trying to like delay it by asking questions? Or do you think she's just trying to appeal to like a progressive base but not doing enough and ultimately just going to get rolled over with this project?
1: Um, I think she is going to get to the end of this and say we did the best we could. Mm. And at this point, that looks like it's going to be a lot like the CRC with a few... A few tweaks, hmm. but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be framed as a as a compromise between between Portland Metro and and um, Clark County, Washington.
0: Yeah, there, I remember there being like a strong vein of that last time. There was some really, uh, like you know, progressive voices here. I remember Rex Burkholder being one of them, who was trying to convince you know his base, so to speak, or the people that supported him. I mean, this is a person who, you know started the bicycle transportation Alliance. Right. But he supported the CRC and he just thought that people that were against it weren't seeing the forest, you know, through the trees and that it was our only chance to get light rail. And I guess he just thought that that was, you know, such a big victory that, you know, it was worth supporting. Now I think things have changed since then. I think like those kind of like compromise views are not, no longer as palatable to the base as they used to be like, you know, the, the external ills of widening a freeway, even with a light rail line is probably even not palatable to a lot of people that oppose this project. So yeah, remains to be seen. What What do you think about like the opposition? Do you think that's getting through to the executive steering group or any of the, any of the project leaders or, or is this just, just like something they're just like shooing away like a little, like a little fly?
1: I think that it's very, yeah, it's not, we're not getting through. Um, I think as the as the public slowly w- wakes up to the the reality of of all of the highway spending basically keeping us at the same spot we are it's just uh, a fool's errand to to continue to spend all these money this this some these insane amounts of money on, on new road infrastructure mm. I think the public is slowly waking up to that more and more, but I think this is still being framed as as a special project and a a unique one. You'll have even the most sort of, you know, safe safe seat Democrats in districts that are nowhere near the project talking about how important it is to replace the i five bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a product of the political era we're in right now where it's like, um, we have to be able to do this basic thing um we're we're washington we're not washington dc we're you know we're cascadia we're not um the dysfunction of the nation and so we can come together and and do this important project and get this bridge fixed um while not really paying too many attention uh, much attention to the details mm. and if they're saying oh it has to have seven interchanges and it has to have 10 lanes and it has to have all these bells and whistles it's like oh it's just part of of, of the package we, we got to do it like it's just gotta drink drink our medicine and just get it over with and then and then move on without looking at the entire picture we have of the rose quarter um and then on the other side of the the border basically a continued plan to to wide widen i-5 between canada and oregon you have you have that happening um near tacoma you have another Project on the horizon near Olympia, the Nisqually Delta. Those there's some bridges there that are, they're saying need to be replaced, and they're gonna add lanes.
0: Yeah, I'm curious what you think about like what's going on with the I-5 Rose Quarter, in terms of not just like the governance of the project, but like the opposition. I mean, there's obviously way more organized opposition. That project is a little more further along, but like, how does that Rose Quarter piece of it figure into like your view of what's happening uh, on the
1: Columbia? I think the Rose Quarter is a very special project, a very different project. There you have, you know, a very urban area and you have a lot of um dynamics that are really echoes of of the highway planning of of 60 years ago. Whereas a lot of the expansion projects now, um I think DOTs recognize that if they're going to do a project like that, they have to come with a lot more um mitigation and and uh, you know, uh, community benefit. You have uh, Washdot in Seattle expanding their 520 bridge uh, through the middle of Seattle, and and that's coming with tens of millions of dollars in in highway lid funding. Which is, um, it's basically you know, you're putting up with this uh, wealthy neighborhood, you will be getting this in return. But I feel like the Rose Quarter is the sort of project that. We don't really do a lot anymore.
0: Yeah, so you're saying that like, like what's happening with the interstate bridge project? Because it's not like in a central dense city; it's over a river. It does. It's just like it's like apples and oranges. It's like a just a different animal in a lot of ways than what's happening at like the Rose Quarter. Mm-hmm. How 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 should how should just like you know regular Joe, whatever advocate person link these two projects should they do you think the the dots are linking them do you think i mean i think that's part of the oppositional like conspiracy theory is that they've got to get one because they they want the other Have you, you heard you've probably like heard that right or like heard people thinking that there's this nefarious plot to you know they have to get both so they'll do whatever it takes do you, do you link them in your mind as well or
1: um i mean i definitely link them but i don't really i don't think i think it's a pretty obvious uh you know i think it's a fairly um Um, it's a fairly transparent just process that Mm -hmm. when they have one bottleneck, they need to do the next one. Um, We see this all over. And so I just feel like that, you know, highway department widens highways. That's what it does. They need to find the next one. And you can continue to frame I-5 and, oh, this is the second worst bottleneck in the country. Oh, it's the eighth worst bottleneck in the country. Like, Um, There's obviously a whole industrial complex around uh, quantifying that and saying, here's what we have to do. Um, But what's not being said is what do you get if you don't do that? What can we do with the money that could go to that? And it's, you know, we have all this language around, oh, we have gas tax money and it has to be spent on quote unquote highway purposes, but. First of all, you can take a very broad approach to what that means because frankly building light rail is a highway purpose in my mind because you're getting people an option to the highway, but that's obviously not what the the DOT departments want to hear. So
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean you, you describe yourself as like an as an advocacy journalist. So how does that like manifest in how you approach, you know, your work in
1: covering this stuff? Um, I think uh as an advocacy journalist, I think I just I give myself license to just say what I see in front of me and not have to couch it in the language of reporting on what's happening or just what people are saying and not the actual um, subtext or context or any of those um, missing aspects that I feel like just kind of are left unsaid in a lot of uh, mainstream journalism. Um, If I'm looking at a presentation at the Transportation Commission, that's being given by WashDOT on um, a a brand new freeway that they're building in the middle of Spokane and, and trying to frame it as, as placemaking. I'm going to call that out as absurd. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm, I'm letting my, my, my feelings show. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever,
0: have you experienced like sources and people at DOTs like treat you differently because of that? Because you know, you're not, like the newspaper of record or just some more sort of mainstream channel? Yes. Yes, I have. I have encountered that. Do they, is it like, and I'm asking this cause I just, you know, I, I've had similar experiences, but like I am just curious if, if if, that's something that you feel too, where it sometimes can be harder to get comments and they just kind of like, it's easier for them to ignore you. I mean, what has been anything off the top of your head, like in terms of how that's happened or what they've done that's, that you think is like really different because they know, or they assume that you're, out to get them or something like that that dynamic
1: I have definitely encountered the representatives of certain transportation agencies um being very paternalistic about uh our approach and um verging into lecturing us about how to do our jobs um that has happened there was an instance where uh we decided not to um seek official comment we had the whole story we got um uh, we got comment from one level of government that was involved in the story that we're working on. We, we decided not to get comment from another level. Um, and when the story came out, we got an email, number one, asking for us to take the story down, and number two, lecturing us on how to be journalists. But ultimately, there was no correction that could be offered or, or meaningful uh, counterpoint that could be provided by that representative in terms of what the story was and the story did not change. So yeah, that's always,
0: I think that that's a response I always hope I can use and can use and like try to use as much as possible. It's like, I'll stop someone if it's like one of those angry phone calls or emails and I'll be like, is the story wrong? Is anything inaccurate? Is there a mistake in the story about, you know, a fact? Oh, there's not? Okay, thanks for, I understand you're upset, but right? It's like, if it's not inaccurate, They really don't have much of a beef, in my mind. A lot of times, they just don't like how it sounds. Correct,
1: and half the time, their complaint is usually with the headline.
0: I think as, I think as reporters, and like I would put myself in a similar boat of. I I wouldn't. I don't like call myself an advocacy journalist anymore, just because I don't want the heat. I don't. It's just too complicated, so I just say journalists and let people say whatever they want. But people like. You and I in our shoes, the stuff we see in terms of like being in meetings, dealing with these government people and policy people, um, and also, you know, interfacing a lot with advocates, uh, you know, the more sort of like, you know, traditional advocacy groups, the nonprofits. I mean, is there something that comes to mind for you in terms of like, how the heck can we change this big machine that keeps coming out with these outcomes that we know are not the right ones? We obviously don't like these outcomes in terms of like bigger always always freeway expansions like what do you think is the answer to, to shifting this dynamic is it throwing the bums out in the legislature and like getting involved in the political process i mean there could be more than one answer
1: <laughs> ultimately what i think is even though we might be losing the battles we are winning the war um and that things are moving in the direction that we want them to and and that's actually why we have such a rush for these projects to look like they do, is because they, the people who are, are moving these forward understand that the window is closing for a $5 billion highway project and that, that there's not going to be a political appetite for that anymore. When ironically, it's the projects that we should be spending money on instead that we need so urgently that are. Um, Or what we would would actually benefit us the most right now in terms of uh, acceding to that new reality of a uh, changing climate and a totally different different world, basically.
0: They're kind of in the the last gasp of this like highway industrial complex old way of doing things. It's kind of how you see it in a more broad like a higher level. I do. Um, I think like the clock is ticking
1: on this whole cash cow of just like massive as big as you can get. Freeway stuff. Everyday people are starting to understand that spending money to expand a highway means you just get traffic. And and I'm
0: really curious to see on this
1: interstate bridge project
0: if any elected person emerges to help, like hasten that shift, right? Because it's going to take so much longer for for us to get over this era of freeway building if it's like just people yelling and just advocates pushing. Mm -hmm. It could be so
1: huge to have a leader stand
0: up and go, hey folks, jig is
1: up. And so I think we have some gold stars to hand out already on that, but we'll see if we can actually um, have those people see this through. But Mm. um, I need you to remind me, um, uh, Gonzalez is on the council.
0: Yeah, he was who I was thinking of more on the Rose Quarter thing. He's actually given a really specific way to make the change, which is like, Let's neglect freeways and overspend on urban arterials, basically. Like, that would be a nice way to, I think, frame it. Like, let the freeways rot to some degree. I mean, you don't want people falling in rivers, I guess, but maybe you do. You know, uh, but then, yeah, let's, let's get to where we're overspending on these orphan highways and making those super nice and adding, like, superfluous, like, speed reader boards, which is what the DOTs are doing on freeways. Mm-hmm. Like, drives me crazy. Like, we, we don't have streetlights in some neighborhoods you can't get across the street to your school yet they have so much extra money to throw around that they do these stupid little messages that say traffic ahead in 10 miles or 20 minutes to the next interstate. Those things are so, that to me is such a symbol of waste and just like how
1: over built these freeways. You're, you're getting at something which is becoming so pervasive, which is every single project that a DOT does is, has a safety benefit. And Oh, it reduces crashes, so it's a safety benefit. Okay, what are those crashes? Um, are they fender benders? How many serious injuries? Um, when do they happen? Do they happen during congestion? Um, and it, that just is, it's a side uh, issue. It's not really addressed. And whereas we have these urban um, h- urban highways um, in Portland, in Seattle, in every city in between that are state responsibility um, and it's just—it's literally you can set your watch to someone being killed. Um, you can just set your watch to it. It happens every like arterials, yeah, every so every so so many weeks. Um, but we're over here saying that this is the safety benefit, yes. and it's infuriating because it just feels like um, gaslighting. You know what really
0: what really chafes me about that is how these the DOT leadership. And the legislature people to some degree, they're just like chameleons with their arguments for like why this stuff should be built. Depending on what the audience is, they'll totally just change. And they have all these different priorities. They can just make the number one priority. Like early on, especially like the Rose Quarter thing, when that was first, you know, like being shopped around, it was all about freight bottlenecks, getting those wheat farmers through, freight, freight, congestion, because, you know, that was like the most salient, obvious thing for like a legislature person who is, you know, a part-time, right? They're not super steeped in this stuff. That's an easy sell. Everybody's like, yeah, we can't have a bottleneck on the interstate, what? But then, you know, you you talk in front of advocacy crowd, you have to, they try to say safety is the number one thing. If, you know, like in the Rose Quarter, they're saying this is an economic development thing. We're going to put money back into the black community that we decimated, right? I mean, it's so, it's just like, Whatever audience they're talking to, they're going to change their number one reason for being. That is so frustrating to me. Okay, so, uh, you actually want to walk across it, and that would be would that be your first time walking across the I five bridge?
1: It is going to be my first time walking across the bridge. Yeah, I've never had a reason to. uh... Yeah. Oh, cool. It's it's probably too early, but it'll still be really interesting to walk
0: across just to like get a sense of you know what's possible and what's there now.
1: Obviously the the you know best proposal would be a separate pedestrian bridge. Um, and that was discarded before. Um, it's essentially already been discarded now, in my view. So where do things stand now? It's just a it's a pretty critical time right now. The uh, committee uh, that the the two state legislatures have to discuss the project is ramping up into um, monthly meetings. And so they're gonna be um, meeting every month to talk about different aspects of the design. They're, they're basically trying to get this um, sign sealed and delivered back to them by the end of March, which is gonna be a very, um, very heavy lift, but that's the timeline they're trying to use. Um, it's just wild that we're having a conversation about basically designing the IBR solution again, um, whatever that means, um, in a three-month period.
0: So what's this thing they're trying to get written off
1: and they're trying to get sign-off for? What exactly? Like
0: the parameters or like the, the purpose and need or the scope? Like what is that, that thing for March?
1: The design. Okay, to explain what you mean by that. The actual, what the bridge is going to look like. So will it, will, whether it will have light rail, whether it will have 10 lanes. What? Between,
0: between now and March? I think people are going to be really surprised at that timeline. I mean, most advocates are just like over, you know sitting around like thinking these things take so long. I mean, I think people really need to pay attention then. Is there is there any levers to to push to kind of like influence that at all?
1: Um the biggest lev- lever is your your state legislator, particularly if you're in in the Portland metro or or suburban um Clark County, because mm-hmm. uh, those people are on the committee. Um you know, I'm hearing from from specific uh, Portland legislators who might be on the on the side of, of killing the project that they, they think it's going nowhere, but hmm. it's my opinion that this is this is going to be a, a fully designed project before we know it, and it's almost going to be too late for us to sit and to turn around and say, "Wait, what happened?"
0: I feel like there's like a fundamental error if they if they don't do something distinctly different than something that failed so spectacularly. I mean, what am I missing there? If they, if it's going to be CRC 2.0, don't they know that that's not going to pass muster? Or do they think people won't notice? Or that
1: the machine is so large, no one can turn it off? I think they are trying to frame it as a foregone conclusion that this is like this is the thing that solves the problem, and so. Because we have the same purpose and need. We have the same thing we had from 20, 2011. We decided that we were not going to add climate change. We're not going to add equity. And that's being done to... Well, we can't do that because it, it will derail the timeline. And we have to replace this bridge because if we if the bridge collapses in an earthquake before we get it replaced, then that's the end of the world. And so many carbon emissions will be emitted by that is what Greg Johnson said. So um, it's basically eliminating all of the things that we're not going to do. And, ooh, what do you know? We're left with this 10-lane bridge that looks exactly like the CRC. And they've been told to reuse all of that documentation. Yeah. And so that's where we are. Okay, well,
0: hopefully we can end on a high note, like maybe on the bridge or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. I'm glad you're you're uh, looking at it so closely. Ryan, thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. After our conversation, Ryan and I went out to the I-5 bridge and walked across from Portland over the Columbia River to Vancouver, and then back again. And when we returned, I asked him what he thought about the
1: experience. It's great that it's available as a lifeline for people, I guess, but it's not really a choice that a lot of people would make. Um, and like I said, it's it's any improvement will be exponentially better, but I think we have to ask ourselves what the goals for the project need to be around the bike and pedestrian facilities on this project and, you know, what is not good enough. And that sounds like, when you're just comparing it to this, a very easy bar to clear. In a region where, you know, Oregon and Washington, two, two states that have some of the most robust climate change targets in the entire country, the, the transition on its primary freeway between the two states, it should be world-class. It should be amazing to walk across. And the distance between what it should be and what it is right now is, it's hundreds of traffic lanes, basically. That was journalist Ryan Packer.
0: You can read his work on The Urbanist, on Bike Portland, and on his Twitter account at Typewriter Alley. The Bike Portland podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe to our podcast at bikeportland.org podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. I'm your host, Jonathan Moz. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.